Hello, I'm Jamie Drucker. And I'm Hannah Crowther. And welcome to Legitimately Interesting, a podcast from the Bristow's Data Protection Team. Uh, And just a reminder at the outset that there are a number of earlier episodes of Legitimately Interesting covering a range of excellent topics, including generative AI, biometric data, children's data, subject access requests, amongst others. So please do check them out on the podcast feed. Uh, But today we're going to be talking about automated decision making. Um, And one of the reasons we're doing so is that in December, we had the very first CJEU decision on automated decision making on Article 22 of the GDPR, which was the Schufa case that concerned credit scoring. Uh, And there's a lot to say about Article 22, and it's a very interesting topic. So we thought we'd make a great topic for a a podcast episode. So um, jumping in, I mean, Clearly, with rapid technological growth, in particular with the explosion of AI technologies, uh, and also organizations always looking for more efficient ways to run their businesses, it's not really a surprise that more and more decision making is being put in the hands of computers uh, and automated tools. And we can see that across a range of um, processes, whether it's credit scoring, uh, recruitment, testing, uh, public authorities, you know, looking at access to benefits, to possibly more benign activities like content recommendations. And um, there are a significant number of decisions being taken by automated means which have an impact on individuals, on, on data subjects. Uh, and this has been a concern for legislators for some time now. This isn't just related to the, the huge growth in AI. I mean, the GDPR itself, you know, was finalized in 2016. And um, even, you know, at that stage, it it had provisions on automated decision making. But even if you go further back in time to the 1995 directive, so really that pre-internet as we know it, um, there were were measures in place to protect individuals against decisions being taken about them by, by computers. And we can actually look at this sort of outside of data protection law, right? This is a broader concern for a lot of people. Um, it's a protection against this computer says no world. I always making sure there's a human in the in the loop so that you know we're not being dominated by our robot overlords, right? Like this isn't a unique to data protection. And actually there's been a whole media furore about this really recently with the post office scandal, um, with the in fact numerous lives being ruined by a situation where computers were making mistakes which then weren't challenged by people. But of course, this is a data protection podcast, so bringing it back to Article 22 of... Give us some law, Hannah. (laughs) Um, So Article 22 of the GDPR is the bit which concerns solely automated decisions. So this is a right not to be subject to solely automated decisions having legal or similarly significant effect. And we're going to unpack all the different elements of that in a minute. But just first of all, just to to look at the, the wording of that. Now, it is phrased as a right, as in you have a right not to be subject to. But it's actually been sort of universally interpreted as a prohibition. So organizations mustn't make solely automated decisions having legal or similarly significant effects unless one of three exceptions are met. Yeah, and I mean, that that point about whether it's a right or prohibition, that was something we talked about when when this legislation was first adopted, because Article 22 sits within the rights section, sits alongside, you know, access and rectification and and portability and all of those other rights where data subjects have to exercise them. And we were sort of 
I think probably hoping that might be the case, at least from the controller's perspective, that the data subject would have to do something. But the the uh, EDPB and the Article 29 Working Party, as it was then, kind of slapped that down. Exactly. And they've actually flipped it on its head and said, no, no, this isn't something you have to actively request. This is something that which applies without you having to exercise it as, as a right. So it's a prohibition. Um, but we've got three exceptions, so circumstances where you can make these automated decisions. And this is where if you have the individual's explicit consent, if the decision is necessary to enter into a contract with the individual, or if, it author- if it's authorised by law. So relatively limited. And even if you do meet one of those three exceptions, you still have a few safeguards, hoops you have to jump through. So, for example, you have to provide the individuals with additional transparency about the logic involved in the decision, which is that protection against the kind of black box technology. It means that you as an organisation have to figure out what the machine's doing and you have to be able to communicate that to the individuals. Um, And then... Perhaps most significantly, you have to offer the ability to obtain human review and contest the decision. So putting that human in the loop if people ask for it. But then there's even more complexity. There's there's quite a lot to Article 22, actually, because if you want to use Article 22, if you want to do automated decision making using special category data, then that's even more limited. You really can only do that with either explicit consent or if it meets a public interest condition, which is obviously something to think about because this sort of um, med tech, I suppose, with the expansion of med tech, this idea of actually having some solely automated diagnostic tools is becoming increasingly, you know, is is a real growth area. So I think there's there's a lot of challenge and and, uh, interest there. Um, There's also a recital in the GDPR which says that Article 22 decisions should not concern a child, but the data protection authorities have sort of just chosen to slightly ignore that rather unusually. And they've said that it's a bit of a difficult one. They've said, oh, it's only a recital. Don't take it too seriously. It's a, so more like guidelines, shall we say. I assume we can apply that approach to all the other recitals. In the well, DPA. yes, very unusual um, for, for the DPAs to say that. But I think they just got in a bit of a tough stop tough spot where there are in practice quite a few automated decisions some of which are really valuable so for example there's quite a lot of work being done on on age determination age gate where they they quite want the automated decisions so they're saying but think about it really carefully but it's not a blanket prohibition on article 22 for children provided you meet one of the other exceptions so it's quite a lot to think about in terms of things to do once it is an automated decision. But before we even get to that stage, thinking about those criteria for what constitutes an automated decision for Article 22, let's just break them down a little bit more. Um, The the first bit is the decision needs to be solely automated. So clearly computers feature as a part of many decisions and as a tool used to aid decisions and humans have different levels of involvement in in the the decision. But for the purposes of Article 22, for a decision to be solely automated, there cannot be any meaningful human intervention. So meaningful in that sense means having an influence on the outcome of the decision. So if you're in a situation where the the automated tool is coming up with a a rule and the the human is just applying that in every case and follows that, that logic in every case, then we would say that the human intervention is not meaningful. But there's clearly, you can already sort of discern there's a bit of grey here because what happens when the human follows what the machine recommends in 99% of cases? What about 95% of cases? 
where where does there start to be some real and meaningful judgment call being exercised by by the human so that that bit is is somewhat um open to interpretation up for grabs potentially there's also a little bit of i do, I do think it's worth emphasizing because i think a few people make this mistake that it's crucial to think about it in terms of there has to be human involvement in the decision for every data subject so that is quite different to what i was talking about earlier with human review of the decision where you have an escalation or perhaps just the last stage in the process is open to human review so say you have a recruitment process you do automated cv standing yes you might have a human ultimately deciding who employs the last candidate or, you know, and you might you might invite sort of 100 people to interview even. But if you have rejected anybody on a solely automated basis, then that's that is solely automated just because you had humans later on in the decision. And that's obviously for the people that get turned away. That's pretty significant for them. So, yeah. yeah. So then that's the solely automated bit. But what do we even mean by a decision? And this is where I think it gets really interesting. So I think there's there's a there's a debate to be had about. What, constitute a dis- what constitutes a decision and whether a decision for the purposes of Article 22 requires there to be a form of discretion or judgment call, i.e. the decision could have gone a couple of different ways and as a result of the automated processing, it goes one way. Um, so, for example, to, to illustrate this a bit, if you have a website that has a, an age gate on it, you have to be 18 to access the service on the website and they use a, a kind of self-declaration age gate. So the user has to put in their date of birth and a user inputs an age which is below the threshold, so they're 16. Um, the computer reads that date of birth and denies them access to the website off the basis of that, that input. Um, that, is a deci- that is a decision that has been taken by solely automated means. Depending on what the service is, that could have a significant effect on the individual being denied access to that service. Um, but is that really a decision? Could that have gone another way? Or is that just literally an input and an outcome? I think this input output thing is this is what the one of the bits that I find most sort of fascinating and difficult to grapple with with Article 22, because there are so many decisions, like you say, where it's just a computer reads an input. And there's really there isn't any other way that decision could have gone. So IP blocking is like geo blocking, right? My it reads my IP address. That's my let's assume that's my personal data conversation for another day. Another podcast. Exactly. But, you know, reads my IP address and sees that I'm in the UK blocks that website. That most of us don't think about that as an automated decision. It's just a, a fat, it's just a, a, you know, reading an input, but it, it's not really clear on what basis other than sort of broad legislative intent that this was meant to capture those more discretionary decisions. And, and what is even meant by discretionary? So, so thinking again about that age gate thing, contrast the sort of um, self-declaration age gate date of birth input with some AI-based guess of how old someone is through a facial scan right i think that feels inherently more more automated decision making like but that is still essentially receiving a load of inputs applying some rules and having an output so you know where is the line and again like you know just throwing another example out there pre-recruitment uh testing if it's a maths test and there's five questions and five answers it's pretty clear what the answer is the 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 tool is making the decision based on what we think is pretty clear answers it could only have gone one way whereas sort of a personality based assessment tool make it feels a bit more like a decision so it almost starts to get into the territory of 
some of the kind of fun AI discussions we're having about what is what is judgment, what is thinking, is the machine thinking? It's it's kind of interesting in that area as well. Yeah, yeah, and and then supervisory authorities definitely aren't sure what they think here because they've really sort of been focusing on these much more discretionary things where you've got a machine sort of replacing a human. But then one of the ICO examples is just marking a standardized multiple choice test and that you should get human review for that. And I do think that's a very interesting question as to what are you actually reviewing? Is it just that the computer's got your, your test right? Because presumably it's not your score, right? Because it, it could only have gone one uh, either way. So I feel like we could spend a really long time on this one. So. Yes. Let, <laughs> let's focus on the outcome of the decision. That's, the, that's one of the important bits. Exactly. So looking at the next section, the sort of last aspect rather of, of that Article 22 is the decision must have legal or similarly significant effects. And the examples given in GDPR are refusing credit, fairly seems legit, and e-recruitment. So again, whether you get a job or not. Um, but there is also, again, a lot of grey and a lot of question marks, and a lot of judgment to be made here. So particularly, the, the this, we've got legal effects and similarly significant. So the implication here is that all legal effects are significant. And I think that throws quite a lot of question marks in, in terms of, well, is any situation where you are denied a service or a contract that's a kind of a legal effect because someone refused to enter into a contract with you. Is that a significant effect? What about a really, really trivial contract for, you know, incredibly trivial service? You know, you're locked out of a online game or something like that, you know, free, but it's still a, it's still a terms of service, right? They're still refusing to contract with you. I, I'm sorry, I'm just interject. And, and also, you know, what is significant to one person might be quite different to another person. So we have this idea sometimes when we think about questions of contractual validity about a contract for necessity, right? So what is in today's day and age, what is a, a contract for a necessity? What is a necessity? Um, arguably, for a young person, access to social media platforms could be a, could be absolutely fundamental to their freedom of expression, their ability to form communities, etc. Similarly, you know, you mentioned a game, all right, I agree on the face of it. But for some people, gaming is absolutely you know, it's very significant to their lives and therefore a bit denial of access to that could be very significant for them. That's true. That's true. And it is, there's clearly a judgment call to be had here. I do think it's worth, it's important to apply a de minimis threshold to the legal effect. And I do think you have to have some sort of level of severity. And it's not the case that any legal effect should be within now that there's a level of just, of just applying a you know, a bit of common sense here, right? And saying, look, they say similarly significant. We think the that implies that there must be some de minimis threshold to the legal effect. The EDPB guidance talks about things that impact someone's financial circumstances, access to health, employment opportunities, and access to education. So they're clearly thinking about things which are quite serious. Um, but then they do throw in this like curveball regarding uh, targeted ads, right? Where they just can't bear the idea that it might not be significant, but they, they sort of leave that hanging a little bit because they suggest that most of the time targeted ads wouldn't be. But then what about if, say, for example, you showed a gambling addict an advert for gambling and that caused them to start gambling again? And, you know, I, I take the point, but I do think they are they are stretching that somewhat just because they couldn't let the ad tech off the hook. I mean, slight tangent, but I almost wonder if it's a sort of slightly defensive piece of guidance drafting. They want to avoid a scenario where in an ad tech case, someone is turning around saying, well, you didn't include advertising as a, as a significant decision. Therefore, is there really an impact? Yeah. Sort of the two yeah. things are kind of talking to each other. They're being a bit careful. 
Um, but I do think, I think when thinking about whether you fall within Article 22, it's worth just bringing it back to remember all those safeguards you had to put in place. So, and remember the very limited exceptions. So sometimes you think, okay, well, actually, this sort of can't be an Article 22 decision because I can't put in place those safeguards, right? You know, I can't comply. So I do think it's worth thinking about, okay, well, is there anything you can do in that case to bring you outside the scope of Article 22? And it's not always the most conservative approach to bring you in the scope because it, it just can be so challenging to then make sure you have a lawful basis for it, meeting one of those exceptions and comply with that, that human review obligation. I think it becomes quite apparent that we're very interested in this topic because we've been speaking about it for quite a while and we haven't even mentioned the case. Okay, sorry. Yeah. Well done, Jamie. Keep us keep us on it. That's fine. So let's let's talk about the Schufa case because as I say, it was the, the first CJU case on on Article twenty two. So um Schufa is a, a leading German credit reference agency and as as with lots of credit ref, credit reference agencies, uh it comes up with a probabilistic scoring model to you know assess someone's credit worthiness shares that information with lenders, with banks, uh, and the banks will place some level of reliance on that on that credit score to decide whether to offer someone credit or not. Um, the credit score itself uh, that, that Schufa was, was developing was produced and generated by solely automated means. Uh, the bank, when it took its lending decision, there was a human involved in that, but it's obviously taking a solely automated decision and applying it by, by a human. So the question was, what was what Schufa was doing, the creation of the credit score itself, an automated decision subject to Article 22. And what Schufa was arguing was that it, it, its decision making, its processing did not engage Article 22 because it was only responsible for preparatory acts prior to the decision on lending made by the lender. And the CJU didn't agree with this. And what they said was that the, the, concept, the concept of a decision is broad uh, and includes a range of different acts which can affect an individual in, in various ways, including both the decision by the bank to deny credit, but also just the calculation of the credit score itself. That itself as a standalone was a was an automated decision. Um, and it found that the calculation of the credit score as a, as a standalone item would have significant effects on the individual concerned because of the level of reliance that the bank was was placing on it. That was a matter of factual evidence, you know, in practice, how much are they applying these scores? Clearly, credit scores are going to be pretty persuasive. Otherwise, you know, this whole industry wouldn't exist. Banks wouldn't wouldn't go to, to credit reference agencies and, and pay them the money to, to, to find out this information. I think, um, I think, as is quite often the case with the CJU when it looks at GDPR, um, they were quite concerned about whether there was a gap in protection for the individual. So if they'd gone a different way, if Schufa was not subject to Article 22, would the individual concerned in this case have been able to receive any meaningful information at all about the decision-making logic that there was at play here? Well, they couldn't have gone to Schufa because Article 22 wouldn't have applied and they wouldn't have been able to explain it to them. And they also couldn't have gone to the lender because the lender wasn't the one doing the credit score. So they would have no information about exactly what inputs and outputs are used and what rules are applied. So there's a gap in protection there. And that that's probably you know, one, one of the main reasons why the uh, CJU took this sort of fairly expansive uh, approach. 
And I, I, I would sort of agree with that. Quite unusual yeah. for me to agree with the CJU, but that seems logical to me. I can see this being applied in lots of circumstances or rather being relevant in lots of circumstances beyond just credit scoring. And I think recruitment is a really key one at the moment where we're seeing lots and lots of recruitment tools which are being used to recommend candidates, score candidates, sort of narrow your pool. And you get a situation where you would get, say, you you know, you've got your 10 candidates, you send them to this, you know, very clever recruiting tool and they perform some whizzy tests. Maybe they get the individuals to submit some tests. They do some ranking on their CVs and they send you back a score and then you decide who to hire. So human in the loop of the hiring decision. But I do think that there would be a real question mark for that individual candidate as to whether, in fact, the recruitment organization who you used that, you know, assessed their application and came up with this with score, whether that, again, is a, is the decision that had an impact on them. Um, I mean, I think I wonder if organizations can sort of, can almost you can't game it, but wonder whether they can build in some some guardrails around thinking about how they place reliance on these decisions. So, you know, clearly you're in slightly more dangerous territory if you're using a tool to just to throw a load of CVs in the bin because they don't reach a certain threshold. If, on the other hand, you know, as part of an interview process, you take in a range of information, including the interview, including a score, it's all weighed up and maybe you come to a decision that's maybe a bit more up for grabs in terms of the level of reliance placed on that decision and how much the, the how much the score you know genuinely has as a standalone a significant yeah, yeah. effect and i think it would also depend on so credit scores tend to follow you around from organization to organization whereas if in this case your recruitment score is only being given to that employee and it's not a kind of standing profile that you have with the tool i think that would also make a difference yeah absolutely so okay so let's say um We've met all those criteria. It is an automated decision. Article 22 applies. What, what then? Yeah, so first, so Article 22 applies. So you have to think about, can you do it? Can you satisfy one of the exemptions? Are you going to have to seek explicit consent? Are you in a contractual scenario here? Or have you got a law that you could maybe rely on? Um, assuming that you're going to do one of those, you then have to think about your additional transparency obligations. So giving people information about the logic involved into the in the decision, that's going to require you to do quite a bit of due diligence in finding in understanding that yourself. So, so what does actually what does that actually mean, you know, provide information about the logic? Do you, you know, do you have to lay out a load of technical specs about how it all works? This was something which really um, good, good question, because this is something that struck a lot of alarm, rung a lot of alarm bells when the GDPR first came out with people you know, obsessed with the idea that this would require them to expose their intellectual property and really sort of split these things open. And that's very much not the case. And I think the guidance is pretty clear on that, that, you know, this is just all about giving people, well, the term is meaningful information, but it's about, you know, we're thinking of this from the data subjects perspective, not from your competitors perspective, but what do they need to know to give them sufficient information that they can contest the decision and understand why it's made, why it's been made. So it's not so much, you know, for the example of a credit score, you know, this is how exactly our algorithm crunches the numbers. It's more like we look at a range of factors, like if you paid off a loan late, that is a relevant factor. That's an input. And we bear that in mind. And that might play into your credit score. It's is it that kind of level? I think so. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it depends on the cl- how how clever the tool is. And I think you'd have to be fairly specific. And I do think that as AI 
um, develops, higher standards will be expected in terms of the in the you know the explanations that are required. And at the moment, people probably aren't providing that much. And more and more, you might get to a position where actually you're needing to provide people more detailed information sheets. You know, I think definitely in the context of medical diagnostics and things, people are more used to that idea. Okay, I need to understand like what what are you actually doing and and how you know then people can make a guess also about how reliable this is and how much um how much they they themselves could should question it so then what about the human review you've got to offer this human review and also interestingly it's just that you have to give the individual the opportunity to express their point of view and contest the decision so this can be you know something quite significant that you have to build here a contact point some sort of structure and you have to think about what you're going to allow them to review which comes back to this point of are they checking the actual outcome or are they just checking that this, the system was run properly? And um, because you do need to be really careful that you're not introducing more the risk of bias into your decision making or, or something. Because if you're just saying, okay, well, anyone who who had the automated decision has a right to appeal, then you're sort of undermining sometimes the the objectivity of that automated process in some cases. I mean, this is all very and, and frankly the efficiency of the process as well. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You really don't want to get into a situation where you have deliberately chosen to automate a process for whatever reason, be that efficiency, like you say, be that, you know, to, to introduce some standardization. And then you have this kind of pop-up process where the odd people get to, you know, have their their information, look, you know, treated differently. So you have to, I think, think about that. Is it just a case of checking that the computer read the information correctly and that there wasn't a bug? And I think that is mostly how I would encourage people to look at it. But I have seen, you know, many proponents argue the other way. Um, and then finally, final recommendation, and I think this might be how we've ended all of our podcasts so far. So this is a bit of, for those interesting, let's, let, listening, let's do a little legitimately interesting bingo, um, which is just do a DPIA. If in doubt, always do a DPIA. Um, but I think that also solely automated decision making is, you know, does often meet a few of the risk triggers that the data protection authorities suggest you'd require a DPIA for it. Anyway, it often requires matching, scoring, innovative technologies. It's quite a few things that can be, that, that could trigger it, but also it's just good practice for when you're doing something which is just a bit more high risk from a data protection perspective. And I think, you know, we, there's obviously quite a bit to talk about here. That, that means there's quite a bit to put down on paper. The DPIA is just frankly a useful yeah. you know, repository for all of these, this thinking about mitigations and what the risks are. And it's just, it's the most effective tool really to lay all that out probably. So I think that's all we've got time for. It's a, a fascinating topic. We could go on for, for longer, but um, thanks for joining us today and we'll see you next time. Thanks very much. Bye.